0: Welcome to part three of a series of thoughtful and thought-provoking essays that have recently been published in the Daily Maverick, and the author of which is Michael Power, investment strategist at 91 in Cape Town. In fact, part three of the series of podcasts that we're doing actually incorporates part three and four of these pieces. And the headline of all of them is as follows, why the Bangladeshi taka is now the South African Rand's most important cross-rate. We've spoken about this and I think probably parts three and four are the most important. Let me give you an introduction. It says here, in the conversation about what to do about South Africa's chronic Unemployment problem one cannot reasonably have that conversation in the language of capital the US dollar rather it must be conducted in the languages of our unemployed labor above all Chinese renminbi but increasingly the Vietnamese dong Indonesian rupee Indian rupee Pakistani rupee Sri Lankan rupee or as I suggest in the title of this essay Bangladeshi taka Michael power is with me now. It says here why the business community and government in South Africa are fluent in the language of capital, but do not speak the language of manufacturing labor. And of course, that is the chronic problem you spoke about and probably the most important drag on our economy and our society, Michael, i.e. unemployment.
1: Absolutely. As I said before, 70% youth unemployment, 40% total unemployment, which is um, almost twice as high as it was in the United States during the depths of the Great depression of the
0: 1930s. There is a debate raging, and it has raged for a while, about the efficacy or the status of the US dollar as the world's reserve currency. And people have talked about it for a while, but it still is there. Is it appropriate that it still is the world's reserve currency, even though it's being chipped away at?
1: I think so, yes. I think it is. But um, that is as a reserve currency. Remember, there are four functions of money And only one of them is the store of value, which is essentially what underlies the function of the reserve currency.
0: And South Africa's embracing of the US dollar and uh, not unwillingness, but maybe it doesn't have the knowledge or it doesn't understand the reason why it should start shifting to the currencies that I introduced in my introduction.
1: Well, yes, although since 2009, China's been our leading trade partner when it overtook not even the United States, but Germany. Um, and it uh, overwhelmingly, uh, not just for, for South Africa, but for Africa now, uh, both for trade and investment, uh, the Nimbi is the most important currency. Um, so I, I think it is uh, about time that we started to recognize this fact and, and, and adjust our... Uh, linguistic capabilities as a result.
0: You put it very succinctly, you say South Africa is unusually fluent in the language of capital, i.e. the US dollar, but you go on and say this bias distorts the economic debate in South Africa to a tragic degree. Why is the question you ask? Well, simply, as you put it, because the language of wages earned by semi-skilled and unskilled labour is not the US dollar, but Asian, with the renminbi being the far... The most, by far, the most influential uh, dialect. So it, 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 it's simple. We, you, you can't just suddenly go from one to another, but on the other hand, you can start to understand why that last paragraph is terribly important.
1: I think that's absolutely right. But just to um, make uh, another point, uh, you know, we suffer from not just our uh, inability to speak a language, uh, international language, other than the dollar, but a very high degree of financialization, which is amongst the highest in the world. The, the Buffett indicator, which is uh, equity market cap to, to GDP, for us is 360 percent. For the U.S., it's 186 percent. The U.K., about 100 percent. Australia, 113 so, we have this dominant feature uh, in our makeup, which is the power of capital markets, that essentially excludes and precludes us from understanding that there's another language out there that we need to start. Uh, learning to speak.
0: And such countries as Vietnam, Indonesia, India, Pakistan, Sri Lanka and Bangladesh, again from your introduction that I read out earlier on, who have semi-skilled and unskilled workforces, often in rural areas, are now climbing onto the lower rungs of those value-added product ladders, you say, as their wage structures are lower than China's in these uh, sectors. But South Africa stubbornly stays with the sort of... uh, it's, It's not old and it's not debunked, but on the other hand is maybe not as appropriate as it used to be, i.e. linking themselves to the U.S. dollar. Is that, in a nutshell, what you're saying?
1: It's, it's not economically appropriate, given our circumstances and the challenges we face. I fully understand that we should remain conversant, very conversant, in the U.S. dollar. But to exclude the renminbi from our understanding of how the world turns um, and what would uh, necessarily have to happen for South Africa to start getting uh, rid of its, its, its unemployment problem, it's a major issue. Uh, it's a tragic issue, as I say earlier.
0: One of the most important parts of these three podcasts is, is coming up now. I. Uh, some solutions that you put forward or some questions that you ask. You, you say here, end note to part three, how Keynes dismissed the supply curve, that which might turn out to be the Achilles heel of what is the essence of Keynesianism, aggregate demand management. To summarise, unlike in the West where aggregate demand management, ADM, is a synonym for macroeconomics, China appears to place more emphasis, far more emphasis, on aggregate supply management, ASM, and on a global, not merely a national scale, as is typically done with ADM. This ASM approach does not compete in the Western economics Lexicon. What do you mean by that last sentence? Well, it's a
1: sort of parallel. Um, you know, most economists trained in the Western um, uh, system um, uh, don't speak ASM. They don't speak aggregate supply management. They only speak Keynesianism, aggregate demand management. And to understand how the supply side works, how products are created, um, is uh, incredibly important uh, in today's world. Um, And just thinking that the only way that you should run an economy is by pumping up aggregate demand management through uh, primarily fiscal spending, but assisted by, in the cases of Europe and the United States at the moment, negative real interest rates, um, is is actually to miss half of the story. Uh, The story in its completeness uh, is to understand both the demand side and the supply side. Um, And I'm afraid uh, economists, and especially so in South Africa, Mm. but also, of course, very much in Europe and the United States, uh, don't understand the supply side. And I I tell the story of how uh, there was a a collaborator of of, of Keynes um, and uh, a critic of Keynes, but at at an intellectual level called Pierre Sraffa, who said, hang on a second, while you're formulating this aggregate demand management thesis, as he was in the early 1930s, have you thought about supply. And Keynes dismissed supply, saying really the only thing that matters is demand. And what I'm saying, and earlier I, know, I showed how both first Japan, uh, Germany, then Japan, and then spreading into Asia, Korea, Taiwan, Hong Kong, all of uh, Southeast Asia, now, and of course China, is that they actually understood supply in the equation. And as a result, able to generate amazing uh, levels of economic growth.
0: How can you possibly find a price-setting answer without having supply and demand in the same equation, Michael? I don't quite understand why, why Keynes and his followers would dismiss supply.
1: Uh, neither do I in retrospect, but I can sort of understand it given the siege mentality of the 1930s, um, uh, where they came up with the idea that uh, we need to pump up uh, demand. Um, but you're absolutely right. Please let me also say is that I am not one of these people who believes in aggregate supply management to the exclusion of aggregate demand management. I see both as being a very important um, contribution to the overall concept of macroeconomics.
0: Part four, which is part of part three when it comes to these podcasts that we've been conducting, Michael, uh, says the following. Uh, questions arising from the above diagnosis of what ails the South African economy. Now, this is probably the part where people will, if there is, aren't already pricked up, will start to prick up because uh, these are questions and I'm, I'm sure that you've got some answers to the questions that you pose. We can't go through them all, but we'll go through the important ones from your point of view. The first one is terribly important. It says here, should South Africa prioritise targeting the external price of money via the exchange rate over targeting the the internal price of money via the interest rate. Tell us
1: more, please. Well, uh, without it being an absolute statement, all the countries that have essentially been able to catch up or indeed reignite for the first time since 1945 have done so through the medium of a competitive exchange rate, starting with Germany, going to Japan, then spreading through Southeast Asia and China uh, and now South Asia, uh, the Indian subcontinent including Bangladesh. So uh, critically, crit- to understanding how they engaged uh, the global economy and how they fitted into the global economy was to fit in at the right price of semi-skilled and unskilled labor.
0: Next one. Should South Africa aim to run a current account surplus and so become a net saver as a nation? Is that appropriate, given the current status of South Africa as, in my opinion, not yours, um, between a second and third world nation?
1: Yes. Um, uh, Most uh, emerging Asian nations have run current account surpluses. India's not, though it looks as if, to be honest, on 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 a projection on a sort of five years Uh, horizon, India will probably be running uh, a current account surplus before long on a a structural basis. Uh, And this is the way in which you generate net savings. A lot of those net savings then end up being, uh, as it were, reemployed in the economy and helping to finance the growth uh, moving forward. So my sense is that that we have got caught up in the Anglo-Saxon tradition of running huge current account deficits. And last year, 2020, the United States on its own, with 4% of the world's population, ran 54% of the world's aggregate current account deficits. Um, And we somehow have have taken that as the the gospel um, and sought to emulate it.
0: Yes, but I, I don't think it's appropriate to try and emulate uh, the United States of America, because South Africa certainly is not anywhere close to having the sort of economy that the United States runs. Of course, I mean, it's an obvious no, statement.
1: But- and particularly, critically, uh, with regards to the percentages of, of unemployment.
0: Other than ensuring a currency level, you say here, that would make South African semi-skilled and unskilled wages more competitive globally, what other policies might help close the all-in production cost gap with, in particular, South Asia? What's the answer to that question?
1: Well, there are multiple ideas here. And I think that we have uh, not really pursued, for instance, special economic zones, which was was China's term for it, but uh, the concept of export processing zone goes back to, actually of all places, Shannon in Ireland immediately after World War II. Um, but the export processing zone, and I mean an all singing, all dancing, not one that is just here and a bit, there and a bit, but really not really integrated or well thought through. But export processing zones are a wonderful way of uh, bringing, um, bridging the gap Um, between, in our case, um, what's happening inside South Africa and what's happening outside South Africa, which we can somehow contribute to and make our labour relevant uh, in terms of their cost structure so that they can actually be productive uh, and export uh, finished products to the global markets. So
0: export services zones, as you call them, that is one potential solution.
1: Processing zones, another solution would be export services, which is not something that's done very often, but
0: yeah.
1: uh, I've seen it in example in, in operation in, in Uruguay, in Montevideo, uh, the so-called Zona America. Um, and they uh, are not allowed to do business inside of, of Uruguay, uh, the companies in this zone. Um, but they can do business on a, an unbelievably low tax basis, almost tax free across the whole of Latin America. So there are are firms like Architects who are selling their services all over Latin America who are operating out of the uh, the zona America in in Montevideo.
0: And Dubai has adopted a similar model quite successfully, I think, to to the one you described in Uruguay.
1: Absolutely, absolutely. Um, Obviously, with with quite a high initial focus on uh, finance. But yes, they've got the Dubai Media City now, um, which... uh, uh, although the only distinction I would say here is that they can also sell their products uh, inside the United Arab, Arab Emirates. Here, um, uh, this concept of an export services zone essentially precludes you from, from selling locally.
0: What other constructive roles, you ask, can governments play? And I'll I'll come to whether whether you're reaching out to government with the with these articles later on. But is government being active enough and also collaborating enough with the private sector in order to achieve some of the goals that you've laid out?
1: Uh, Probably not enough, but they also start to need to start collaborating with the foreign private sector um, and listen to what it is that they want um, we always have this uh, sort of misbelief that somehow um, it's just something that we need to do amongst ourselves. Um, you know, in the case of Lesotho, they've reached out to the textile companies of Taiwan and, and, and China and said, so guys, what do you want? Um, and uh, they've listened to what has been said and, and as best they can come up with, with um, you know, an enabling environment that allows those those companies uh, to, to, to do good business out of Lesotho. So we need to listen to what the foreign investors who are going to be setting up our production facilities. I mean, it's been happening. Uh, an interesting example is in Ethiopia. You might think um, the export processing zones they have there, uh, the, the, the Chinese or maybe the Indians would be the largest investors. They're not. They're the, the Turks are by far and away the largest uh, investors in the EPZs in in, in, uh, the textile sector in in Ethiopia. But the Ethiopian government listened, interestingly, using some Korean advisors who were apparently the ones who were behind the setting up of the textile zones in in, in Bangladesh. And they said, well, why don't you come and do the same for us? And they've tried to, and so far uh, the start of success is evident. So we need to understand that listening to the foreigners what they need is perhaps even more important uh, for an export processing zone than listening to locals.
0: I'd like you to prioritise your suggested solutions, having looked through the list that, by no means definitive, I haven't broadcast it as a, as a definitive list because it would just take it would take half an hour. But uh, could you prioritise the top three solutions to the extraordinary situation of chronic unemployment, please?
1: The first is that the currency will have to do much of the heavy lifting, and there is no solution, in my opinion, to uh, this problem that does not involve a more competitive currency. However, it is not the only solution to the problem. Number two would be to have export processing zones which really are all singing and dancing and they are both um, uh, export service zones and export goods zones Um, And the export service zones, for instance, could be very successfully set up in Johannesburg. Export goods zones, by and large, need to be set up um, near ports Mm. um, uh, simply because of of, of logistics and and, and cost. And the third would be for government to listen to what the people that are setting up businesses in those zones as to what it is they need. What level of education, what types of education do they need the workforces that are going to be employed in those zones to have? Uh, How can they support it in terms of reliable and regular supply of of water and electricity What sort of a tax environment? And and my basic example is that you start out with virtually no tax, if not no tax at all. And those sorts of uh, enabling conditions that you would wrap around these zones. Uh, in order to make them attractive. And the critical thing is not to South African companies, although there may be one or two that actually do go into them, but to foreign companies. Uh, The great success of of even China uh, has been that they've been able to attract companies from abroad in order for those companies to set up business, to join into supply chains globally, uh, and to then start to export whatever product it is that they put together in those zones.
0: Very final question from me, Michael, is you've received good press from the publication of these articles, these essays in the Daily Maverick. Indeed, I was speaking to the ex-CEO of a South African bank yesterday and he was, uh, he was uh, very satisfied with what he'd, he'd read. But more importantly, have these articles, do you think, uh, via yourself or via the Daily Maverick, plonked on the desks of certain South African government ministries?
1: The honest answer to that question is I don't know. I would like to think so. But I think it's important just to have put this all down in one place, not to have done it in a thousand word article, because the idea that somehow you can address South Africa's problems in a thousand words, um, I think, is, is, is a little ambitious. I wanted to do something that was, was chunky, meaningful, explored all dimensions of it, and then asked those pointed questions at the end that essentially flowed from the arguments that were put out before, so that the answers are likely obvious to anyone reading the whole thing together, whether our government can actually, as it were, stop thinking in dollars, speaking in dollars and start moving into the world that we're now moving into, where other currencies uh, are very important, maybe not the Bangladeshi taka But that was the, the provocative one that I put out front just to make people sit up and, and take notice. Yes. So I do think that um, hopefully the gentleman you mentioned, the lady you mentioned, even if they're in the private sector, will say, listen, you actually got to do this. And I have had a couple of feedbacks from other sources saying, Michael, that was by far the best essay that we have seen on trying to address the deep-seated problems of South Africa.
0: Very good. I've enjoyed these three podcasts, Michael. Thank you very much for your time. Michael Power is an investment strategist at 91 based in Cape Town.